Welcome to episode 197 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. This is the What We Want to See in the Winter Sky Before It's Gone episode. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky in this podcast. Is there anyone else that likes going out under the stars? So as it gets dark, Shane, we've got uh, some new moon periods, some period here coming up over the next couple of weeks when the moon is going to be out of the sky. And at the end of February, Capella and Auriga are passing through the zenith, while the rest of the winter circle constellations are approaching the meridian. We call this the Orion Hour. So with these lighter evenings, we are getting towards the end of winter and have, uh, have a little while yet to maybe take a look at what's in the winter sky. Are you excited for this? Well, yes, um, but cautiously excited because our <laughs> weather just hasn't been good. So I'm, I'm hoping that we are able to get out here. Um, cause the other positive about this time of the year for us is, uh, the temperatures warm up a little bit and observing is more comfortable. And, and typically our Springs actually aren't too bad. Like there's been a lot of times where you and I, and, and Mike, were observing in February, um, and you know, it's, it's quite warm sometimes like right around yeah. freezing where we're wearing lighter jackets and, and it's just, you know, far more enjoyable than, than, uh, you know, what it can be during the winter time here. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, what are you, what are you looking forward to seeing now that we're getting, you know, some hopefully warmer evenings, you know, it's been like into the minus forties and now it's into the minus fours, which is awesome. And, uh, yeah, what are you what are you kind of hoping to see for for the winter sky that we really haven't been able to get out and enjoy much of uh, so far this winter? Well, there's there's two uh, lists or projects that I'm uh, slowly ticking away on. Uh, one of them is the RASC double star observing list, um, and there's a there's a few doubles there that I would like to get in before spring comes. Uh, Larry talked about a couple, um, that we mentioned on the previous, uh, podcast, uh, on, or the previous episode and, um, uh, Struve 162 and Struve 390. Um, mm. you know, those are interesting. Um, so definitely some double star observing. And then, um, the other one that I'm working on is, uh, Stephen James O'Meara hidden treasures list. There's, I think there's 109 objects on that list. Uh, spanning all seasons. And uh, there's some open clusters in uh, Monoceros uh, that I would like to see. And um, uh, there's some stuff up in Eridanus too, a, a couple of galaxies I wouldn't mind trying for uh, that mm -hmm. are on that list. So yeah, there's, a, there's certainly no shortage. And then, you know, there's some of the kind of the showpiece items um, uh, like M42, you know, I can never, I can never look at that one enough, um, especially under darker skies. Um, another double star is, uh, Sirius, uh, Sirius B, you know, I'd really like to see that companion, uh, as well this year. How about yourself? Yeah, I get, uh, you know, fairly, fairly extensive, uh, list. I was, you know, Dave, Dave, uh, who's one of our listeners had recently made the suggestion about, uh, counting the stars, uh, in M45 and, you know, it'd be great to, to get some listener emails, um, put our email address at the end of this, but it'd be great to get some listener emails on how many stars people can see in uh, M45, Messier 45. Messier 45 is the uh, Pleiades uh, open cluster. And we talked a little bit about that uh, in the previous episode, but you know, one thing with the, uh, with the Pleiades is, is that there's that uh, nebulosity, especially around the star rope. Do you ever see any, any hints of that nebulosity that the uh, Pleiades is, is meandering through in space? 
Yeah, it's an it's an interesting conversation because a lot of people report visually seeing nebulosity in M45. And um, because of the luminosity of like the six primary stars, um, what it sometimes is, is just dirty optics that people are, you know, mistaking mm -hmm. for uh, nebulosity. Um, but in my 12 inch light bridge, I believe I did see some of it around Merope. Um, uh, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd say that I saw it, but it was very, it was very faint. And you know what? I, I guess there's probably a possibility I didn't, maybe it was a little bit of fog on the mirror. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess that could be. So what's what's happening is is that Messier forty five uh, is an open cluster and um, it's traveling uh, through our Milky Way galaxy. And and what's happened here though is a, is is a coincidence, and that's that it's passing through part of the I think it's called the Taurus molecular cloud, and this is a large cloud of dust and gas um, that is in space and then sort of. Uh, the Pleiades uh, has come along and is passing through it. Now, with a lot of uh, sort of younger star clusters, um, such as the star cluster in the Orion Nebula or some of the stars in the Lagoon Nebula that we see in the summer, um, those stars are being birthed out of a nebula. And I think the story goes that it was it was originally thought that the nebulosity that the Pleiades has around it perhaps was left over from, from the creation of the Pleiades. But it turns out, uh, at least from what I understand, that, that this is just simply uh, a coincidence, eh? Oh, yeah, okay. That's interesting. So back in the, the 1800s, um, an observer named E.E. Uh, e. Barnard um, was observing it visually with his five inch. He had a five inch uh, refractor and he actually um, noticed uh, additional uh, nebulosity that is surrounding the Pleiades. So there's kind of like that core uh, nebulosity in by Merope in that. And really on, on a good evening, um, you know, with, uh, with, a, you know, decent seeing and a, and a decent little refractor even um, actually find like the nebulosity isn't, isn't too bad to see. Um, you know, it just takes like, you know, kind of going, going back to it uh, year over year and, and kind of, uh, getting used to what it looks like. And the way that I tell the nebulosity around the Pleiades from the, uh, especially like in the Merope area from, uh, perhaps like dirty optics or, or maybe dew or haze or, or whatever is that it's, uh, it's not symmetrical, and the, uh, the nebulosity that's nearest Merope is kind of like a bit of like a billowing cloud from, from a smokestack or, or a big fire in the distance where it kind of is rising up and then it, it has like a, like a, it kind of shifts, right? And so it's not perfectly circular around the stars. And then you can kind of go and, and take a look. Lots of other bright stars nearby, like in the in the Hyades, there's bright stars. And there's not nebulosity around those. There's mm -hmm. stars up in uh, up in Auriga that don't have any nebulosity around them. You can kind of go back and forth and compare them. And if you're not seeing that similar pattern around those stars, well, then it's it's not the optics. It's something uh, closer closer to that star. And so what, what's happening is the Pleiades is passing through part of this molecular cloud. Uh, it's lighting it up. The, the starlight is simply uh, going out in space, just like, you know, waves being generated from a ship. And, and as those uh, waves of light pass uh, by and through that nebulosity, um, it's, it's causing it to, uh, to glow a little bit and glows um, 
faintly blue, although I don't think I've ever, ever seen the, the blue in that nebulosity. But um, there's a large section. Um, and in a way, this stuff is, is a little bit easier to see than that nebulosity in around the Pleiades. But there's a large three degree section, um, which is just north of the Pleiades called uh, IC353. And it's part of a, a huge reflection nebulosity that uh, Barnard uh, discovered in, in the late, 18, 18, late 1800s. And then he took a, a photo of it in 1896. I think I put 86 in, in my show notes here, but it was I know it was in 1896. And um, what it shows is at the center, it shows the Pleiades. And he's actually removed... Um, you know, the, the nebulosity from the Pleiades surrounding the stars themselves because it was so dark and there was so much um, nebulosity picked up that it just kind of uh, obliterated the Pleiades. So he kind of superimposed another shot of the Pleiades without any nebulosity uh, right in on top of the stars, like that the brighter portion that we often see like in photographs. Um, and then he overlaid uh, that onto an image showing the fainter nebulosity um, that surrounds. Like there's there's a variety of other ones, but I think the the easiest one to see is this IC three five three part. Um, like I said, which is just north, and it's about three degrees across. So it's a really good target for people with, um, you know, like we've had a lot of people writing us with these uh, really nice uh, little affordable sixty and seventy millimeter um, f six refractors. Um, you know, and even people with uh, little ST80s, we call them the 80 millimeter F5s, are great little telescopes for trying to pick up um, this nebulosity. And because it's reflection nebulosity, you don't need any kind of fancy um, filter or anything like that to see it. It's going to look best um, just by using the the optics uh, alone. So have you ever looked much at, at reflection nebulas, Shane? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I have in the past. Um I kind of go through phases, you know, where I'm looking at galaxies an awful lot or clusters an awful lot. And, and when I had my 12 inch, um, light bridge, I, I did spend a lot of time on nebula. Yeah. So these, these reflections are, are simply caused by the nearby stars. So unlike other nebulas, like the Orion nebula or the lagoon nebula, like I mentioned before, they they're shining, they're actually um, giving off photons themselves as part of the star creation process. So in those instances, the nebula filters are going to work really well, like your um, your oxygen three or your O3 or your UHC um, line band filters will work really well for picking them up. Um, and of course, they look great in astrophotos, as does uh, the Pleiades. And you can pick up these faint nebulas uh, around the Pleiades uh, if you're an experienced um, astrophotographer, um, but it's surprising that even just with uh, a small telescope, like a, like a, you know, like I said, a two and a half or three uh, inch telescope, you can actually start picking up some of these fainter ones. Uh, but you do need to be using that really low power um, eyepiece in in the in the telescope in order to start uh, start picking them up. So you know, it's just one of those things. Um, so yeah, what what are what's some, what are some of the observations, or uh, would you like to observe? the uh the messy 45 star cluster uh, this winter shane so, i don't know if i understand that what what do i want to observe or do yeah. i want to observe m45 yeah yeah like do you have any sort of observations you want to make of m45 uh nah, not really uh you know i'll probably look at it because i enjoy looking at it um we discussed on the previous episode about doing a like a naked eye star count um from a dark site i 
I would be open to that. But um, M45 is an object that I usually look at in the fall quite extensively because as it's rising, um, you know, it's it's uh, it's a nice early evening object, and uh, uh, you know, as such, I, I usually look at it a, a few times then, and then I'm good. Okay. All right. Yeah. Sounds good. Um, so kind of like this, this list of the stuff that I want to look at is, is taken from, uh, from the list that I've been publishing in the RESC observers handbook for about the past decade or so. So I'm kind of just sort of working from that. And this stuff is maybe it's a little bit, uh, challenging or whatever, but I think it is kind of interesting. So, um, a lot of these objects were discovered, um, visually or early photographically, um, but they are within the grasp of amateurs. And one of the neat things about them is uh, these are um, objects that, uh, that a lot of people, if, if they're not as much into uh, looking through the telescopes as they are and taking photographs, the telescopes make some really interesting uh, targets for, for people uh, to work towards. So, for example, um, this nebulost around the Pleiades that was discovered uh, by Barnard in the late 1800s. Um, you know, really makes a spectacular wide field uh, image. And what, what you end up seeing if, if you take an image of it is you'll see not only the bright uh, luminosity of the, the nebula that the stars are passing through, that the Pleiades are passing through in space, but what you'll also uh, perhaps pick up is you can pick up some of the sooty clouds, um, sort of some of the dark nebulas that are part of the Taurus molecular cloud that are, I guess, too far away um, from the uh, Pleiades star cluster to pick up any of the light or the light just, just isn't passing through them for whatever reason. So you can kind of see this mix of a uh, beautiful bright star cluster and, uh, and some of the faint sort of ethereal blue glowing clouds, as well as some of the uh, dark clouds that, that are in the general area. So it's sort of a, you know, it, it's a bit of a challenging thing to see, but I think for anybody to go out and take a look at the Pleiades um, is, a, is a really, really cool experience. And you can even see it, like even from the city here, I can see the Pleiades um, from my driveway. But in order to start seeing some of this stuff, you have to be somewhere uh, fairly dark. Or I, I do know that um, that there is an individual even that just lives a few miles away from my house, closer to the downtown core. And he's taken some remarkable um, images of, of some of this faint nebulosity, um, you know, even, even from a, from a medium-sized city. So some of the other stuff um, that I have on, on this list and some of the stuff that I kind of want to revisit, it's a little bit more challenge comes from the, uh, the Sharpless catalog. Do you ever look at any of the Sharpless objects? Yeah, I've seen a few. I'd have to check my notes about which ones. Um, I can't really, yeah, I can't remember. I can't remember which ones. So one of the ones um, that I've, you know, run, run across and I ran across this because there was these beautiful images taken about uh, 12 or 13 years ago by, uh, I think it was Sean Walker and Dennis DeChico in Sky and Telescope magazine. And they took these beautiful images of the winter sky, like of Taurus, Eridanus, um, you know, it had, had the whole like winter circle from, uh, you know, Capella and Origa and down through, um, had lots of uh, nebulosities through Gemini and Monoceros and Canis Major, and then back up through Orion. 
Um, but what they were doing is, is taking a lot of shots in like hydrogen alpha and uh, some of these different wavelengths of light. It's when, you know, these filters and the, the uh, digital technology was, was first able uh, to really capture some of those things. Do you ever see those images or similar images of like those wide field shots of, of the winter sky? And you can see like all those huge sort of wreaths of nebulosity. Do you ever see those? Yeah. Yeah. It's quite stunning, right? Because some of these, well, some of that nebula is, um, you know, very challenging or in some cases not even possible visually. And um, when you see it on a photograph, it's astonishing because you're, you're not used to seeing some well-known constellations like that. Um, you know, Orion might be a great example of, you know, if you, if you get a, a photograph of the entire constellation and you see all of the nebulosity within that constellation, it's, it's quite remarkable. Yeah. So when I was, when I got that magazine, I think I ended up buying two or three copies of it. Cause I took one out and I trashed it like in the do. And, and then I think I took one out and, uh, and did the same thing. And then I finally bought another copy and I, I actually cut out the, um, the article and put it in a, in, in like an overlay, um, like plastic overlay material so that it would, it would be okay. I don't know where it is now, but what, what I was so excited about was that, um, like using my five inch telescope and I just bought, um, my H beta O3 and UHC filters. Um, I was really excited just, just sort of to, to, you know, to, to pilot the ship kind of through those fields and to see what, uh, what I'd be able to pick up. But like you were saying, like these, uh, huge clouds of, dust and gas that are out there. And I think some of them, you know, of course, some of them are like star forming regions. And then some of them are just glowing uh, gas that's, that's out in space, that's visible in, uh, in these, these almost non-visual, non-visual wavelengths. But uh, as, as I found out, you can see some of them. So uh, I think in total, there's something like 313 H2 regions that uh, Stuart Sharpless ended up uh, cataloging down to a declination of negative 27 degrees north and published his first um, catalog of 142 objects or the SH1 or the Sharpless 1 objects in 1953 um, and then had had subsequently uh, published additional catalogs in, in 59 uh, and then I think eventually totaling like 313 of these um, uh, objects, which include everything from planetary nebula to supernova remnant remnants and uh and at other and other other uh, additional h2 regions so uh Stuart sharpless like tremendously accomplished uh astronomer worked at all the major observatories from flagstaff to palomar um to yerkes um you know the list just goes on and on and and that's you know kind of carried forward this this work throughout his uh his career and he only passed away was in his late 80s passed away in in 2013 uh, I think it was, but, you know, it's, it's really uh, exciting to kind of, you know, try to, you know, sort of uh, plow your, your telescopic ship through some of those uncharted uh, waters, which typically a lot of these nebulae aren't even marked on many uh, star atlases. Although um, one of the star atlases I use, which is the uh, uh, Ronald Stoyan's uh, interstellarium, uh, actually contains many, not all, but many of these uh, Sharpless objects uh, are included in there. And sometimes they overlap. You know, like you were saying, um, in Orion, you know, some some of these Sharpless objects will overlap, like with the Orion Nebula or some of the NGC objects or the Caldwell objects uh, or whatever. And then there's some more uh, recent catalogs, like the GUM 
survey. Um, for example, like one of the famous gum nebulas is the Vela supernova remnant. Um, but anyway, if you want to see like a really good comprehensive um, usable, uh, let's see, not atlas, I think that's the wrong word for it, but a, a catalog of the, uh, of the Sharpless objects, a uh, person by the name of Rainier Vogel, uh, V-O-G-E-L, has a uh, PDF of the Sharpless objects. Like, um, I know like in the past, like having this list out there, and it's not like a list that people can go and get an observing certificate for, but it's, it's a list that I just kind of created for fun on, you know, what's, what's possible to see from the darkest sites with small, really wide field telescopes. Because one of the things that two things have become really common in the past uh, couple decades, and that's um, inexpensive, really wide field telescopes, sometimes as supplemental to people's other equipment. And then um, in combination with going to dark sky sites, like uh, Dave, who I mentioned earlier, he and I were chatting about um, observing and going to dark sky sites. So he goes to Cherry Springs and we go down to the grasslands and, and go on other dark sky adventures. Um, but we like the small telescopes for further for the portability, right? <laughs> and being able to, to drag those off to, to all these sort of far and distant lands. But then what can you see when you get there? And you get there and of course... Uh, if, if you kind of go and continue to look at those sort of same brighter objects, that, that's great. And they're going to look a lot better um, through your small telescope than maybe um, what, what a larger telescope is able to show you from home. But at the same time, um, these instruments uh, sort of can open up a whole, a whole new world uh, or a whole new universe. Um, and then for those doing astrophotography, these, these can make some uh, interesting targets. So one thing that I noticed was that um, Eridanus, and Eridanus is not a constellation, though you mentioned there was a couple of galaxies maybe up there that you wanted to take a look at. I noticed that in uh, in Sean Walker and, and Dennis DeChico's uh, images that that there was this bright uh, section in uh, in Eridanus that was probably about as faint as, as some of the more challenging things that uh, that I've been take, taking a look at uh, you know previously. So. I uh, got my five inch uh, refractor and got out to some really dark sites. And uh, I was actually made, able to make an observation of, of this section called SH2-245, uh, or I guess what, what's end up being called like the Eridanus arc, which is uh, a long vertical arc. And I think uh, it's sort of like the Northern hemisphere equivalent of, uh, of the pencil nebula in the, uh, in the Vela supernova remnant. Um, but of course, I'm not sure if this is a supernova remnant or just a giant molecular cloud uh, in Eridanus. But I don't know. I put an image there in the in the show notes, Shannon. I'm not sure if you've ever um, observed this before, or if you've ever even noticed that uh, in any of those images. Um, no, I don't think I've observed it. Uh, I don't recall trying for it. <clears throat> Excuse me. So yeah, I don't believe I've I've seen it. Yeah, it's, it's calling it the Eridanus arc is a little bit of a misnomer because this bright section is actually, uh, it actually extends from Taurus into Eridanus. But I, I think mostly the section that I've been able to see is actually uh, in on the Taurus side. So um, kind of starts just in front of the Hyades and then it arcs down into Taurus, then forms a loop and then uh, comes comes back up. But uh, sort of one of those, one of those fainter uh, things to things to see. So uh, what were the galaxies that you wanted to look at in, in Eridanus or do you have them handy there? 
Yeah, um, one is NGC twelve thirty two. It is uh, it's known as the Eye of God galaxy, I guess. And, okay, uh, it's a, a magnitude uh, nine point eight, um, and it looks like it's about I think six and a half uh, arc seconds across. So it's a decent size. Um, okay. Um, and, and, you know, at magnitude 9.8, it should be within, you know, the reach of my four inch, uh, well, you know, that's what Steven was using. So, uh, it should be, it should be doable. Um, I'm assuming a dark sky will be required. Uh, what else can I say? Oh, you know, the, the interesting thing about galaxies, um, which we've talked about in the past is just the, um, the ability to see them can be a bit misleading, um, you know, because that magnitude is spread out sometimes over a larger space and, and, and you know, like M33, for example, is a fairly high magnitude, but it's so large. It's, it's actually somewhat challenging to see, uh, especially under a, a, a sky that's not very dark. Yeah. Um, so the other one, uh, that I want to see in Eridanus is, uh, NGC 1291, um, this is the snow collar galaxy, I guess, and, okay. uh, it's a magnitude 8.5. So it's a little brighter, yep. uh, but it's larger, uh, than, uh, 1232. It's uh, nine and a half, uh, arc seconds across. So, um, yeah, yeah. it, it almost like in images, uh, 1232 looks like your standard sort of pinwheel galaxy with some arms. Um, but 1291 almost looks, uh, like it looks more nebulous, um, like with a bright core, uh, and then I don't know if it's some dust, uh, in the outer reaches, but, uh, it's, it's a different looking galaxy, maybe a bar galaxy. I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. How about, uh, getting over towards Orion? Is there anything in, uh, in Orion that you might be uh, looking to take a peek at? Um, yeah, there's, uh, there's definitely a few things in Orion. Um, there's a bunch of open clusters there that are kind of interesting. Uh, one is, uh, I guess 1981. Uh, NGC 1981. That's uh, right below uh, the Orion Nebula, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Three prominent stars there, uh, known as the uh, Coal Car Cluster. So that oh, one, okay. that one has some interest. Um, oops, what the heck just happened here to my list? It looks like it reorganized it. Uh-oh. Um, I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> good. Um, good. And then there's a like there's the Running Man Nebula. I, I've tried for that in the past, and I think. I think we've, I think we've observed that one together. Haven't we? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Is that, is that M 43? Uh, part of M 43 or something like that. I don't know. It's NGC 1977. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if it has an M like a Messier equivalent. I don't think so. I'm not, I, I don't believe it does. Uh, then there's the, uh, there's a rubber stamp nebula NGC one nine, nine, nine. And then the elusive flame nebula. Uh, that's always on the list. That one's uh, quite challenging. Yeah, I've seen. So that's the one um, besides Zeta, isn't it? I think so. Yep. Yeah, I've been able to see that in binoculars from just even a decent sight. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I don't find that one too. That one's not too bad to see. I don't. Uh, I don't think anyway. So yeah, it shouldn't that shouldn't be too bad? Have you not seen that one before? I don't think I have. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah like even a seven by 50 will show that from a good site you okay. just it's kind of just being open to see it right like a lot of the time uh can be can be just um you know thinking that you're seeing a reflection in the binoculars or whatever and like you need good quality right like you need to have a good clean 
uh, optic that, uh, you know, that has really good glass in it. But yeah, even a seven, even a really good seven by 50 will show, uh, will show that. Then of course, and that's on the um, Eastern side of Zeta Orionis, which is the most Eastern star or the far left star. When you're looking at the belt, like there's the three bright stars in the belt of Orion. That's the one that you're talking about, right? Yes. Yep. 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 Yeah. And then of course, just, um, just to the right or to the West and running South is IC 434, I think, which is the uh, bright nebula that the uh, Orion uh, or the uh, horse head is. Um, right. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right, cool. Yeah, well, back in Orion, um, you know, the one thing I want to take a look at is is this huge nebula in the head of Orion, um, which I've seen before, but I, I wasn't able to get it in the in the fall when I was trying. And right at the head of Orion, um, but at the top of Orion, you have two bright stars, which are Betelgeuse and Bellatrix. They form the shoulders of Orion, but then there's the head of Orion, which is labeled as Lambda Orionis. Um, and then that's actually, uh, an open cluster called colander 69. Um, and it's kind of a neat, uh, triangle of stars. And then there's like some other stars around it. Um, but it's really nice in binoculars or whatever, but then, um, sort of between, uh, almost extending it as far as, uh, Betelgeuse and Bellatrix, and you need about, uh, an, an eight or nine degree field of view to really begin to start to see, see the whole thing is, um, is called the Angelfish Nebula. And there's sort of a, a brighter section that's about four degrees in height and about three and a half degrees wide that forms like the front of that, which is just to the uh, above and below and, and to the west or to the right of uh, Colander 69. And that makes the uh, sort of the head of the Angelfish, which which I've been able to see in my uh, in my five inch before. But I was kind of hoping that if I can get to a dark enough sight with a little 50 millimeter um, and the huge field of view that has, I was kind of hoping that, uh, make enough contrast to be able to see, uh, to see the larger, uh, nebulosity. All right. So, uh, anything else that, uh, that sort of has caught your attention to be able to take a look at Shane? Um, I mentioned too, that there's a couple of, uh, open clusters in Monoceros that, uh, I would like to take a look at, um, Actually, there's three. Uh, NGC 2264, uh, known as the Christmas tree cluster. Uh, there's uh, and, and its overall magnitude is 4.1. Um, quite a quite a large object too, or, or spread out anyway. Uh, then there's uh, another one, uh, NGC 2301, and then uh, 2353. Um, so a few open clusters to explore. Okay. Very cool. Yeah, there's some open clusters I'm going to take a look at as well that aren't uh, not going to be as as challenging as uh, as these sharp lettuce objects. And uh, but these ones are in the Colander catalog, uh, which is a catalog of 471 open clusters by a Swedish astronomer Per Colander, uh, published in 1931 uh, on a paper called "On Structural Properties of Open Galactic Clusters and Their Spatial Distribution." Um, and what's cool about all these is, and, and that's why I, uh, you know, mentioned a Vogel's site on the Sharpless, uh, objects in his PDF, um, because I, somebody was asking me about these and I mentioned that, um, oh yeah, well, there's these catalogs and whatever. And someone said, oh, well, I'll have to save up to buy them. And I'm like, 
you don't need to do that. These are free, <laughs> you know, like there's no, there's no book or anything or, or chart or anything that you have to buy. You can just download these papers for free. You just kind of go digging around a little bit. Um, and, you know, you can just do a search for Sharpless objects, PDF or colander objects, and you'll find people that have um, done all this amazing work that, that would be great published and in a hard book format um, that you could buy, but they've kind of freely um, put it out there. And of course, the original authors like uh, Sharpless and Colander, um, their original papers are, are widely available. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool um, popular uh, catalog because many of the objects are really bright and uh, there's quite a few of them, like sort of the uh, one of the popular ones is the, uh, you know, Perseus, uh, Alpha Persei moving group, which is one of the colander objects as well. But some of the ones I'm going to take a look at are in the southern reaches of uh, Canis Major, which really just culminates, um, you know, around midnight on these nights that uh, that we're looking at, like colander uh, 121, which is just south of uh, M41 in Canis Major. And then one of the really neat ones, I don't know if you ever looked at this one before, is called NGC 2362. That might be one of the hidden treasures in, a, in Omira's book. Um, and it's right beside a star, which is beside another star. But anyway, um, you can see those in like a 15 power binocular. And, uh, and that 2362 just looks spectacular. And then as well, um, there's a there's a couple or a few uh, open clusters in the colander catalog, sort of that form like this meandering row from southern um, Canis Major into uh, Puppis, and we can only just barely start to get some of the stuff in Puppis that that's really interesting. But in the bottom of Canis Major, we have colander uh, one thirty two, which is okay. But then we have colander one forty, and uh, I'm particularly obsessed with colander one forty. Because I think it was the cluster that uh, Aristotle was observing um, when he when he wrote about seeing a cluster uh, in Canis Major, because um, this actually corresponds more closely with his observation of what he saw and uh, and where it is. So he wrote about um, a hairy star, basically um, kind of looked like a comet in the tail of uh, of Canis Major. And um, when you when you look at Canis Major from a dark site at the same latitude that uh, that Aristotle would have been observing some from, and I've gone and done this, um, you can actually see uh, the whole of Canis Major from a really dark site. And there's nothing there that really looks like a comet uh, except for Colander uh, 140, which which really really does look like a comet. Like although in the in the images you just see a couple stars. And uh, and then sort of a trail of stars. Those those two stars that are fairly bright end up just sort of merging together and forming a bit of a head. And then the trail of stars and some of the other stars around it blend together to form like a fuzzy uh, chain. And and from a, a good really dark site like Aristotle would have had, and uh, and looking in that general area, it's uh, it's pretty surprising how much Colander 140 does actually look like. Uh, like a comet and and perhaps what Aristotle wrote about. Although I don't think it's, it's you know, it, it would be definitive to figure out what he was referring to exactly because his notes are uh, rather vague. Um, I think that the best option is Colander 140 and not uh, not the uh, Messier 41 as, as often as, as described. So I, I have a long story about that. I'm not going to get into here, but the other two things I, I really want to see in that general area are Colander uh, 135, which is in Puppis, and then 
want to see if I can actually see uh, NGC 2451, which I've seen from more southerly locations, but it culminates about two degrees above our true horizon here. So a bit of a challenge. Yeah, that would be pretty tough. You'd, you'd want to go south, even, even if it's just a few hundred kilometers in any little bit would help that. Yeah, I've, I've seen those before from southern locations. So I've got sketches and everything of them, but uh, it would just be fun to be able to get them if I can get it to, uh, to a good spot here. One thing I haven't seen before, this one's sort of something I've tried for and failed to see is the Seagull Nebula, which is just uh, northeast of Sirius hmm. in, uh, in Candace Major. Did you ever see this one? No, no, I've never, I've never tried for it. I feel like, you know, and I've tried on a few occasions with a variety of instruments and I've never been able to get it. I'm not sure why. I don't know whether it was just like the, the nights weren't good that I was going for it or what, but uh, that's one of the objects I really want to uh, want to really uh, give a try for uh, this, this uh, late winter uh, season. Anyway, hopefully I'll be able to get it. So yeah, so that's kind of it for me. And what I want to take a look at, Shane, do you have anything uh, else to to add to this uh, set of objects that uh, that you want to take a look at in the late winter sky? I know some of this stuff is fairly challenging, but uh, I think it kind of gives people, like often we get questions about like, what are we looking at? What are we trying to see? And, uh, you know, this is sort of uh, some of the objects that uh, that we're going after these days. Yeah, the, the Seagull Nebula, I think, would be fairly challenging. It, it's huge. Like, it's 120 uh, arc minutes by 40 arc minutes. And uh, over that that size or over that space, it's magnitude 10. So mm. magnitude 10 in and of itself isn't super bright. And then when you spread, you know, that, that luminosity over that, uh, you know, that, that area of sky, it, yeah, that would be challenging for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it should it should be interesting. I, I like I said, I haven't been able to get it yet. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's kind of an interest. There's a couple interesting dark lanes, which that might provide enough of a sort of a contrast, you know, where you could maybe see like a some faint light, maybe just dropping off. And and you know, this is this is one of the ones too. Like I I guess it's <laughs> it gets to maybe some of the philosophical. You know, what is a what is an observation? You know, this is probably one that. I would categorize more as detecting than, than observing, but, uh, yeah. but, uh, I guess you never really know until you put telescopes on it and see what you can see. Yeah. We'll, we'll see what I can see there, but I've tried everything on this one, my five inch, mm-hmm. like different filters, H beta or three UHC. I've tried the, my 22 by hundred binoculars, my 10 by seventies. And, and, you know, I, I kind of think like it's one of those things that if I can get it on the right night, that's not too cold, that I'm not freezing or the telescopes aren't frosting up, I might be able to get it. But, uh, but yeah, I've been trying to get this one for, I don't know, I, I feel like it's got to be at least a decade. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, part of the fun. Yeah, for sure. All right. Anything else to add to this episode? No, that is everything. All right. Well, thanks, Shane. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, Please like and subscribe to our podcast. And we really uh, enjoy receiving your observing reports and maybe what you're interested in observing this late winter season to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.